The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning and how? No, I'm sorry. That was, I just, come on. Anyway. Um, hey, welcome to Grove today. I'm one of the pastors. My name is Nick and uh, I'm glad you're here. If you're relatively new, uh, I'm super glad you're here. If you've been here a long time, I'm glad you're here as well. We are going to be in um, Revelation chapter one. If you got a Bible with you, you can turn there. Um, I encourage you to be a note taker uh, because there's a bunch of different scriptures I'm going to be referring to aside from Revelation one. Um, and we'll get to that here momentarily. Uh, Jack, my son, and I just got back from New York and uh, had a great time seeing all the sites, doing all the fun stuff, um, but it is always great to get home, and I love my family, and so it was just him and I, so it was fun to get home and hug my family and, and uh, be with my wife and all that stuff, so uh, anyways, good to be back here, and again, if you're relatively new, um, you might not know um, who I am, and, and I'm uh, not really a big deal, but that sounded weird to say that, so anyway, I'm Nick, but Welcome. That was odd, super weird. There are other great churches around here you could check out, and that's, I totally get that now. But um, anyways, I've always enjoyed riding on trains, and uh, I remember you know, taking the Sounder down to Seattle for some sporting events and stuff. Um, I remember doing Boston to New York. That was a really cool one. Um, had a lot of fun, just the sights. And then uh, anybody ever taken a bullet train before? Um, I took one from uh, London to Paris, and that's amazing, but you're d- doing this like constantly because like, things go by so quick, but uh, pretty, pretty fun, and at some point I thought, you know, I'd love to take a train ride up to Canada or a train ride maybe east from here, uh, you know, I don't know, towards Montana or somewhere. It'd be fun. But uh, the other part of the whole idea of, of trains is that they're not always safe. And some of you might remember back in 2017, kind of locally, there was a pretty big train wreck down in DuPont that was, it was a run from Portland to Seattle. They were trying to shave off some time. So they created a new line of track to get rid of a giant long kind of curve. And uh, that, that the, the initial run on December 7th, December 18th, um, they, they came around a corner and the corner, it was supposed to be 30 miles an hour and the train was going 80 and if you remember the news, it like came off the tracks and went down on even on the freeway. And there was, I think, 80 people that were injured, some pretty severely, and three people that didn't survive. And, and there was a lot to it that, of course, the NTSB comes in and, and figures out what's going on and does their study. And the report came back and there was all kinds of things that, I mean, really caused the wreck. And it's a pretty tragic situation. But you can imagine when it's supposed to be 30 and you're going 80, you know, that's going to be a real problem. I say all that because as we jump into this series we're going to do called Off the Rails, there are all kinds of things in our lives that can take us off the rails of life. There are all kinds of ways, dangers, things that we don't heed warnings about that we continue down a certain track and it's not good for us. And so this series really centers around Revelation 2 and 3. And uh, today we're going to tackle chapter 1 just to kind of create the intro and, and, and you know, get, get the, you know, direction going. But um, we're going to be getting into the seven churches of Revelation in this series and what Jesus has. How many of you guys have read Revelation before? Maybe raise your hand. You can put a comment in the chat if you're online. Um, if you've read Revelation before, uh, just to be completely honest about this, there is not a, a wise theologian in the history of 2,000 years that would claim they understand everything about Revelation. And if you've ever read it, you know what I'm talking about. You read it, you get into it, and there's all kinds of things from lampstands to judgments to the abyss to apocalyptic stuff to New Jerusalem, you know, thousand-year reign of a beast. I mean, all kinds of stuff that you go, you know, what symbolism 
what's literal, what's, you know, happened already, what's going to happen, people that say this is already, we're in the middle of this stuff, and all kinds of people that have said all kinds of things. Like I said, there is not a wise theologian on the history of the planet in 2,000 years that would say they understand everything. So today, we're going to jump into chapter one, and then in the next few weeks, we'll go through chapters two and three, talking about each church and some of the warnings and challenges in their direction. But let me jump in, and then I'm going to pray. It says in verse one, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near." John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the king's of the earth. God, I pray even as we stop there for a moment, that again, we would open our hearts to what's being said. That, that, that God, help me paint the right picture here, that as we open up to the seven churches, that there is a bit of some things to understand that are important. And I pray again for that work from your spirit that convicts, that challenges, that opens our eyes just a bit more than they've been. In your name we pray. Amen. So we start out here in, in chapter one, verse one, and it's, it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. And what I want you to notice, just real brief here, is when you look at chapter one, in the very beginning, it's mentioned over and over that the central focus of this entire book, as it opens, it starts with understanding. The central focus of all of what's about to be read focuses or centers around Jesus Christ. And, and, and rightly so, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we understand that like the cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ. That the cornerstone of who we are and how we live on our lives centers around who Jesus is. And so John, in the very opening confession of the focus for this book is, this is about Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, which God gave him to show his servant what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, this John is John, who was the disciple from the very beginning in the Gospels. When you open up the Bible to the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the same John. He wrote the Gospel of John about the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and, and his crucifixion, death, burial, and then his ascension. So this is the John that we're talking about. At this point in history, when you get to Revelation, as he's writing it, He's been exiled, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment, but he's been a leader or an overseer of the churches in Asia Minor, an encourager to a whole community of churches that are experiencing persecution because of the culture. So that's the John that we're talking about. He's the same one who not only wrote Revelation and the Gospel of John, but also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to detail some warnings or encouragements to the church as he's leading it as an overseer. It says, who testifies, verse 2, to everything he saw, meaning in the vision that he sees. That is the, <coughs> excuse me, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, he says it again, this centers around Jesus Christ. And again, that's the cornerstone. We can never forget that. The other part of it is this. He says, um, that is the word of God. Remember, if you go back to the gospel of John, John opens up by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he opens up revelation similarly to how he opens his gospel 
that we call John, about this idea of Jesus being the Word of God. We're going to develop in chapter 1 part of the theological construct, which is a deep way, but, but, but to talk about this idea of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What you identify when you read Revelation chapter 1 is that Jesus is God. There's terms used for He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is, He was, and He always will be. These relate to God of the Old Testament, the I am, but also Jesus in the new covenant. So what we understand here is where we get part of the picture of the Trinity. The reason that's a big deal is because we as a people, as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are not polytheistic. We don't believe in multiple gods. There are religions that believe in all kinds of gods. We don't believe that all. We believe there's one God, but there's kind of three forms. We call it the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Part of that picture is painted in detail when you read Revelation chapter 1. So, um, verse 2, the, test, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, <clears throat> uh, reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. Now, I want to mention this. I talk all the time about you and I being readers and studiers of the Word of God, that you ought to carry your personal responsibility for reading the Scripture. And then I say it this way, and letting Scripture read you. Conviction, correction, Hebrews would say rebuke and, and, and challenge of how you and I live our lives. The Word of God is the plumb line for what we believe that then determines how we behave, because that's how it works. What you believe determines how you behave. And so John says, you're blessed when you read aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, you could, again, connect that to the word of God in general. And the reason I say it is this. Oftentimes, we'll talk about you and I being studiers of the word of God. And that's, that's important. But not only should the word convict and challenge us, it ought to be the word that as we're going about our day, as we head off to work or we're hanging out with family or we're with our friends or whatever we might be doing, from being able to read and study the word of God, let's say in the morning, later that day in some random conversation, you can go, oh, I was reading something that might relate to what you're going through. Here's what this said. Anybody ever had that happen before? Yeah, a lot of us. It's this idea of declaring, not just reading and studying, letting the Word of God transform us, but a hunger for others to understand, to read, and become studiers of the Word of God themselves. I especially could say, as a parent, as I spend time reading scripture in the mornings and processing what I'm reading and thinking about, later on in the day, oftentimes in conversations with my own kids, I'll go, it's funny you should say that because when I was reading this morning and then explain to them something I had read that relates to their circumstance, most of us can understand having those experiences if you've been in Christ and you have kids. It's the nature of how it goes. Jesus or John says, you and I are blessed when we read aloud, when we, when we declare the prophecy of the word of God. And then it says this, and those you're blessed, those who hear it and take heart what is written in it. If you're taking notes, write down Romans 10, verse 17. Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by, come on, everybody say it, the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you and I hear, when we take in the word of God, we're blessed because we're challenged to obey what it's saying. Our faith is built up. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It says, and take heart what is written. James 1 verse 22. James says, 
do not merely listen to the word, and in doing so, deceive yourselves, do what it says. Like I said, we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us as we read the word of God, and we're challenged by it because it's telling us, hey, you're maybe missing it here a little bit, or hey, you're getting this right, lean into that habit, that's a good thing. And as we walk that out, that's taking to heart what is written, and God says that's how we live blessed. John says that's how we live a blessed life. In fact, it has everything to do with this series. It's the challenge by Jesus to the seven churches of Revelation. But but it applies no less to you and I today. We're going to talk about the church at Ephesus. We're going to talk about the church at Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Thyatira. We're going to talk about all these different churches. And there's certain issues in certain churches where one of them, it's this. You've forsaken your first love. You used to be so passionate about your faith, and now you're not. Go back to the habits that stirred that passion. Anybody ever been there? I have. Another church. Here's your challenge. You're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. That's a terrible place to be. Don't stay there. You're getting off the rails. Another church, you're putting up with teaching that is not sound teaching and it's deceiving you and you're living wrong because of it. You have bad theology. You need to understand truth and live by it. Otherwise, you're getting off the rails. Another church, you, you put up with that woman Jezebel is how it's said. We're going to talk about this, but it means you're entertaining thoughts and actions sexually that are not healthy and that are destroying relationships around you. Stop it. You're about to crash. See, over and over, we're going to get into what Jesus has to say to each of these churches, but it's not just a story of churches from 2,000 years ago. It's a story of you and I and how we live out our faith day to day through the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, here's a warning. Here's a red flag. Slow down to 30 miles an hour. You're about to tip over around the corner. So as we jump in, blessed are we as we take these things to heart. Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And again, I listed a few of them. We'll talk about those in a minute. But here's what I want you to understand. When it says to the seven churches, I want to take a second and hone in on that word seven. Now, there have been things written, and and, and some of them are speaking of off the rails, off the rails about like Bible code and numbers and how all these things apply. But there is truth in Scripture to what certain numbers represent. Seven is a really clear example of that, especially pertaining to the book of Revelation. Revelation. The number seven appears, I think it's like 47 times in this letter, in this vision that John has. And the reason that's important is because it's the number of completion. One of the things that theologians believe that John is trying to make sure we understand or it's conveyed is that the number seven represents completion and the revelation is the picture of the end of everything and the completion of all of the end of time and it's over and it's done and it's finished. So when you see the number seven in the book of Revelation, you're going to see it over and over and over. It harkens all the way back to Genesis and creation. And it says in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, God rested. Things were complete and God rests. You go through all of what happens from Genesis to Revelation. And in Revelation, it is done. Now, let me also say this historically, it's understanding when you and I talk about the Bible, 
When I say the Bible, I'm talking about the 66 books of the Holy Bible. We did a series at the beginning of the year called Made to Crave, where we took on chunks of understanding the whole of Scripture in in a series. Part of what's important to know about that is this. When Revelation is written, it is the last and the, the, the most recent book that we have in the Bible, and the Bible is done. You say, how did it get there? People say it's just some old dusty book written by some person some forever time ago. Here's the thing you need to know about the Bible. First of all, it was written by over 40 different authors over a span of like 15, 1600 years. And it's all the story of man's brokenness and God calling us back because he loves us that much. But what's beautiful about what God has given us is this. As the new Testament or new covenant is established, you have the church in the book of Acts, so you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus ascends into heaven, and we're talking about this. He, he, he says, uh, you know, our angels say he's coming back, and we'll get to that in a second. But then you have Acts, and then all of these other books, and Paul wrote a lot of them. They're not just, just you know, the Bible. They're these books that for decades, like church leadership met together, prayed together, fasted together, and, and tried to figure out through a list of criteria what should be in this thing we call holy or what should be in what we believe is inspired by God and what's just other stuff that's circulating that isn't necessarily in the Bible, okay? What we have is these 66 books and by the, the middle of the fourth century, so about 325, 350 AD, they closed the canon and said, we believe this is the Bible. Bible and that's it. Why is that important? Okay, part of it is understanding when the number seven appears in Revelation, it's reminding us it's done, that's it. The other part to understand is this. People have come along in history, and let me just give you a few of them to understand. Muhammad shows up hundreds of years later after this, writes a bunch of things in the Quran that comes directly out of scripture along with his revelation of, of who you know Allah is as well as who Jesus is, who is not God but is below God and is a great prophet but isn't God and writes all this other stuff and he calls it a holy book. Sorry, the book was finished a long time ago. In the 1820s, somebody came along named Joseph Smith and decided that he could write all kinds of you know, fanatical information in a bunch of different things he wrote that nobody cared about. And then he comes up with this idea that he finds golden tablets, certain spectacles that can interpret them, writes it in English, gives it back to the angel Moroni, who buries it, and decides this is a holy book, and we call it the Book of Mormon. It includes the revelation of Jesus Christ appearing in North America on the East Coast in different villages and sharing the gospel, of, you know, his truth to all these different places that you can go to today, and they don't exist. And it's supposed to be a holy book called the Book of Mormon. I'm sorry, the canon was closed in the 4th century AD. Done. Finish. Revelation is it. Another person comes along in the 1880s named Charles Taze Russell. And Charles Taze Russell has this revelation that all the churches in the world are corrupt and all the leaders in the church are corrupt, but God has shown him what's true, so he gets to translate the word of God how he wants to, and he adds to it what we call the Watchtower Society, and there's all kinds of things written that are supposed to be holy that are added to the Bible as he understands it. So you have a whole group of people Jehovah's Witnesses that add to what is Scripture that's a bad translation of Scripture, and and, and they add to it the Watchtower stuff that they've written to show people the truth. I'm sorry, that's not it. It's the 66 books of the Holy Bible, and we're going to leave it at that, and it was done. Why do I make a big deal out of that? Because people are being duped all the time. And if you want to spend some time studying and getting into this, take it upon yourself to do that because people are constantly being misled. 
And you go back historically and understand where did the Bible come from? We did a series on it, like I said, back in, in January, February. But this is a big deal and too many people are being led astray by false ideologies and theologies that don't make sense and are not sound and don't come alongside the word of God at all. And it's important to understand that. There's the number seven for you. Little, little side note. He says, grace and peace to you. It's a typical greeting. And then he says this, um, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Again, this is theological. The God who has always been. The Savior, Jesus Christ, who has always been. As, as Hebrews would say, he's existed from the beginning. Okay, who, who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits, there's that number seven again, before his throne. And, and the Gospel Coalition did some writing on this as I was studying and said this, the number seven as a sign of the Spirit's divine fullness might also allude to the, the translation of Isaiah 11, two through three with its sevenfold description of the gifts and activities of the Lord's Spirit. If you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 11, two through three. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, godliness, and the fear of God, the sevenfold Spirit of God that produces those things. And then it says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 5 is the gospel in a nutshell. Verse 5 is the message of what God has done in Christ because you and I were separated from God because of our sin and our rebellion. And I've said forever, it's not you and I working hard enough. It's not you and I doing enough charitable things. It's not you and I representing a big smile on our face wherever we go that gets us to heaven. It's what Jesus has done. And that's what verse 5 is saying in a nutshell. This all centers around who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you and for me that there we find life, there we find forgiveness, there we find grace and peace. Now verse six, here's the gospel and now you bear the responsibility for it. That's verse six. Here's what it says. And made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, his father, and to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Because of the gospel truth, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, are commissioned to operate as a gathered people full of hope, encouraging one another and going out as a witness to the world. Verse seven, it says, look, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. Verse seven takes us back to, if you're taking notes, Acts chapter one and Philippians chapter two. Acts chapter one, it says that the disciples had gathered and Jesus was there and he's teaching them and he says, wait before you go out and make a difference, wait and pray and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and then go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. They're looking up into the heavens. An angel appears and says, just like you saw Jesus ascend into heaven, at some point he'll come back on the clouds. This is is that revelation of Jesus coming back. And then it says, and every eye will see him, even those on whom he was pierced or by whom he was pierced. The reason I say that and mention Philippians 2 is because in Philippians 2, Paul reminds us of this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place that at the name, he has a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow 
in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are so many ways, just so you know this, there are so many ways that you and I can cross-reference where verses fit and how they fit together, and it's absolutely sensational to look at the whole picture. It would blow your mind. And again, as you study the Word of God, you'll begin to get these things in place, and it's amazing. But when John says what he says in verse 7, it reminds us of Acts and that Jesus is coming back at some point on the clouds like that, but also that everyone will notice it will be visible to everybody. And at the point that happens, everyone will go, wow. And Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It says, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. And you go, wait a minute. If, if I'm alive and, and Jesus returns, why would I mourn? Wouldn't I celebrate? Let me give you two reasons why mourning is for everybody. One, for those that don't know Jesus, in the moment that they see him come back, they'll be like, that's him. And I didn't believe it. I didn't, whatever. For those of us that know Jesus, it should be exciting. And in, in some sense, wow, here we go. But the reason we would mourn is because there's so many that we love that we want to know the gospel. And that you and I have shared the gospel with at times. And I've had people, family members even, that have prayed with me and invited Jesus in and others that haven't and won't yet. And our hearts will be broken for them. All people will mourn. And then it says in, in, in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the callback to the old covenant God and the parallel to who Jesus is in the new covenant. Again, there's massive theological implications to all of these phrases. The first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. And then verse 9, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering. Wait, 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 what? Suffering? I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. If you've given your life to faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean you won't suffer. If you've given your life to faith in Jesus, it doesn't mean you won't face hard things. If you've given your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean stuff doesn't come that doesn't overwhelm you at times. We face tough stuff. And for them, when they talk about suffering, it's related to persecution. And sometimes in America, we look at persecution and we invite someone to church and they say no and we feel persecuted. When you have people literally right now putting their lives on the line to share the gospel in other countries where it's absolutely illegal and they can be arrested, tortured, and even beheaded today for their faith in Jesus. John is one of those that has faced persecution for his faith in Jesus. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was John on the island of Patmos? Here's what you need to know. When it comes to the message of the gospel, the apostles who wrote about it were witnesses of it. All of them died martyrs' deaths, some of them terribly. Paul, or Peter was crucified, but he said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord, turn me upside down. And he was inverted and crucified upside down to death. That's how he died. We believe Paul was beheaded for his faith in Christ. They died martyrs' deaths. John, this John, John, we believe, was boiled in oil and survived. He was a, a, an overseer of the churches in Asia Minor and encourager during persecution. And they saw him as, as a, a threat to the empire and decided to try to kill him, boiling him in oil. And having survived, they're like, well, I guess we just send him off to an island. So that's why he's there. He's, he's, he's exiled to an island because he's an encourager of the church and he didn't have a cell phone with him. 
So he couldn't get a hold of people and he couldn't encourage the church that way. But that's John. So he says, I was exiled because of my faith in Jesus. What he's literally saying is this was persecution because I was an overseer and a leader that was encouraging church leaders all over Asia Minor. But I got kicked out. And he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So he's having this vision. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he names them Ephesus, Smyrna. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All of these churches we're going to be talking about are, are today in the nation of Turkey. I was talking with Ike Neisinger, who in, in the late 60s was in the military, and he was in Turkey stationed there. And he said, I actually visited six of the seven sites of these churches when I was there. And it was amazing just to have a conversation with him just this morning about that. But there's the churches. And it says this, I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. There's that word seven again. And he talks about seven and, and, and or golden lampstands, excuse me. And he's talking about the churches. The churches are the lampstands. And it's no different today. As a church, we're meant to be a lampstand. It's why we do things like iHeart. It's great to gather and be challenged and encouraged in an environment like this, but with the purpose of going out and helping people see the light of Christ by how we live, by what we say and do in the communities that we're a part of. He says, and among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, which is the name for Jesus in the gospels, the son of man. And here's a picture of Jesus. And to me, this is mind blowing. Dressed in a robe, reaching to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. Some of us can relate a little more than others. As white as snow and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he had seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When you see Jesus in the gospels and in the first part of the book of Acts, he's a suffering servant that pays the price that rises from the dead, but he's not in glory yet, even as he reappears. And then he ascends into heaven and now he's in glory. And all of these things are representative of something. Every bit of this description, I'll give it to you quickly. The robe and sash represent his royalty as the king of kings. His white hair, snow like wool is wisdom. His eyes as fire are the intensity of conviction. His bronze feet are, are judgment. That's in the old covenant, it talks about that. The loudness of his voice, the rushing waters is the authority that nobody escapes. His right hand and seven stars are the angels and or pastors of the seven churches, his mouth and the sword coming out is his authority and the truth of the scriptures and his shining face is the light and brilliance that nobody can deny. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's a common response to many people in the Bible when they encounter the presence of God like that. You have Paul who on the road to Damascus is blown away and he falls to the ground uh, overwhelmed in awe. And then it says, then he placed his right hand authority on me and said, do not, listen to this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. If you want a verse in the moment of turmoil, if you want a verse when you're overwhelmed, if you want a verse when you feel empty and hollow and just wonder about everything on the planet, read this verse. These are the kind of verses that anchor us back to God reminding us He is sovereign. 
He is in control. He's got your life in his hands. And if you live in a 24-hour news cycle, it sure won't feel like it. But for you and I, it's the reminder that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he is, it specifically says, the first and the last. There's that language again. I am the living one, capital L, capital O, as a title. I was dead, and now look, I am alive. Remember, this vision is the king of kings now. No longer the suffering servant, but the conquering king. I am alive forever and ever, and I got the keys to death in Hades. Later on in Revelation, that's a pretty big deal, but let me just say this. Here's a reminder. He's got the keys. Paul would say the last enemy to be defeated was death. Jesus says, I got the keys. There's nothing that you need to fear because he's got the keys. There's nothing you have to live in dread of. It doesn't mean we don't in those moments feel overwhelmed, feel anxious, feel afraid, but we don't camp out there because he's got the keys. That to me, those verses, you guys, if you're having a bad day, just read that. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. He's got the keys. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the next bunch of weeks, we're gonna get into each one. And I can't wait. But I love how the picture is painted in three different kind of epilogues in the beginning of this whole thing, or prologues, excuse me, in this whole thing that remind us He's setting the stage to challenge the churches. And hopefully we can set the stage in this environment to challenge the work of the Spirit in every one of our hearts. God, I want to be sensitive to your work. And even as I've been studying out for this series, these messages, it's like, my gosh, I felt moments recently where I'm like, I think I've forsaken my first love. That's the church in Ephesus. In the coming weeks, things that should hit us right between the eyes for good reasons. To be challenged, to be transformed, to not let our lives get so far off the rails that it's a train wreck. And if you're in a train wreck, God can bring you right back on the rails. He can. Here's your homework. Like it's summertime. It's summer school. Here's your summer school. You did this to yourself, okay? You have summer school. I want you to do me a favor and and this next week before next Sunday, just a few times read Revelation 2 and 3. Just read Revelation 2 and 3. Just a bunch of different times. Get your head wrapped around Jesus challenging each church in the context because not all of them are off the rails. Some of them it's just like, hey, you got to persevere. Father, today, God, I just just pray for that stirring hunger in our lives. God, that that ability to, to, to... read and while we don't understand everything all the time and especially with revelation god i just pray for an awakening in our souls of what you want to do a reminder that this whole thing centers around jesus and that's a really 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 good thing that we don't have to earn that we don't have to do all the stuff that we can literally lean into who you are god and find ourselves growing through the work of your spirit in us i pray as we read revelation there will be revelations in our lives god of where there's warning signs, where there's red and yellow flags, where we're heading too fast into a curve, where there's stuff in the way blocking our path down there, but we're not even paying attention. God, I pray 
for you to work, that we don't live life off the rails, ruining what you've designed us for. And thank you too, God, that even if today we're sitting here, I'm off the rails, that God, you bring us back on through your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.